The scripture reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. So I said to John, I know this isn't the night to be long-winded, but what if I get really excited? (laughs) He says, just land the plane. I said, you are the lead pastor of the downtown church, so I will do so. Um, each week we've been looking at the, uh, a text in the book of Luke on generosity, and each week I've been saying, according to the Bible, generosity is way more than just giving away your money. Generosity needs to be pervasive in your life. There needs to be a generosity of spirit, generosity of heart, generosity in uh, relationships and emotional generosity. Like, Are you critical, exacting, always grumpy? Then you're not relationally generous. Are you generous with your time, with your your gifts, your home? We've been talking about all the ways in which we should be generous. But of course, in order to be thoroughly generous, it also means being generous with your money. And this week we get to one of the more famous places in the Bible where Jesus talks about that. This is his interaction with what's called the rich young ruler. Now, notice it says in the very first verse, he's a ruler... And we're also told that he's very, very rich, down in verse uh, uh, 23. But uh, it's, the, it's in Matthew and Mark that give the same uh, account of the same incident that tell us that he was also young. And therefore, he's called the rich young ruler. And in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, we're going to learn three things about the danger of money, about how we can, uh, how we can understand the reason for the danger of money, First of all, the danger of money. Secondly, why money is so dangerous. What is so spiritually dangerous about money? And thirdly, how we can escape that danger. The fact that money is dangerous, the reason for the danger, and how to escape the danger. And we'll learn it as we look at this passage. Now, first, let's talk about the danger of money spiritually. And let's look at the middle of the passage, the heart of it, where Jesus looks right at him. This is verse 24 and says... How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a metaphor, of course, and it's a metaphor of impossibility. Uh, A camel was the biggest land animal 
that people knew of in that time. They didn't have elephants there, as you may know, that in Judea. But they had camels. It was like us talking about an elephant. It's the, a camel's the biggest animal. A needle was pretty much the smallest object. And it's very similar to a metaphor like it has a snowball's chance in Miami. Uh, there's no chance for a snowball in Miami. There's no chance for a uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle. So it's a metaphor of impossibility. Now, is he saying that it's only impossible for rich people to get into heaven? Other people, it's not so hard. Is that what he's saying? Uh, well, we've got a problem, if that's what he's saying, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were fabulously rich, and David and Solomon and Job, who were fabulously rich, Jer- Joseph of Arimathea, who was a follower of Christ, who was fabulously rich, were they not saved? Yes, they were. And if you look carefully, when, when he says this in verse 27, uh, 28, uh, other, oh, pardon me, verse 26, those who heard him said, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Notice he doesn't say what is, imp- what is impossible with rich people. He says what is impossible with all people is possible with God. And what he's saying here is what the rest of the Bible says, which is all salvation is a miracle. It's impossible that any of us would be saved because Romans 3 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And therefore, uh, it's really not possible that anyone should be saved except for God intervening. See, when, what does God do? He does the impossible. Why? It's supernatural. It's a miracle. So he is not backing away and saying, well, you know, most of us, it's easy to be saved, but rich people are hard. It's impossible for anybody to be saved. In that case, why is he picking on the rich here? Why is he singling out the rich in particular? And here's the answer. That which we all have a problem about. That, that those spiritual things that, that create a problem for all of us are accentuated by money. They're enhanced by money. They're actually made worse by money. So the same thing that makes salvation impossible for all of us makes it worse. Money has, a, has this power to make things even worse, and therefore Jesus is warning you about the spiritual dangers of money. You say, well, how does that work? Well, what, in what way is it spiritually dangerous? Some uh, years ago, in fact, some of you were probably around when I did this, we spent uh, almost a, half a year going through the book of Proverbs. It was, a, it was a remarkable study for me, and I hope for those of you who are here and for others. And in the book of Proverbs, which is in the Old Testament, it talked a great deal about money. Uh, and on, it, was, it was startling because on the one hand, what the book of Proverbs says about money is actually pretty positive. Proverbs is always saying if you work hard, you'll make money, that money is good, wealth is good, uh, hard work is good. So it's very positive. And yet, it turns around in a number of places and puts red flags everywhere around money too. It's incredibly good, but incredibly dangerous, like fire, actually like God too. Uh, Money is incredibly good, but it's dangerous. Red flags. What are the red flags? Well, uh, some of the things Proverbs says you probably know about Money has the power to corrupt people and make honest people dishonest because of the temptation, but you know that. Another place in Proverbs, it says that money doesn't just have the power to make you dishonest. It might not make you dishonest, but it can make you ruthless. Ruthless. It can make you hard, non-compassionate. Now, I think most of us realize that money's got the power to do that, right? Yeah. But here's two things that that Proverbs says about the spiritual power of money uh, that maybe we're not as aware of. First of all, it says, 
Money has the spiritual power to distract you from what's really important. Uh, Proverbs 11.4 says, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. What's that talking about? Well, first of all, what's righteousness? Here's what he's saying. First of all, the, the passage is saying this. Money makes you incredibly busy. Have you ever not noticed that? Have you ever noticed the word business is actually the word busyness? And you know it. Because in order to make money, you've got to be so busy. It takes so much time. It is so absorbing. And then, if you actually do make money, do you realize how, much, how, how busy it makes you to spend it? If you, in other words, if you say, oh, I've got enough money to buy a home, there's the end of your life. <clears throat> I, I've got enough, in other words, you, you not only, it, it, uh, money not only makes you incredibly frantically busy to make it, then it makes you incredibly frantically busy to sustain it and to keep it and to maintain it and then to spend it and then, of course, you need to make even more in order to, to sustain that level of living that you think, now this is the way I wish I need to live. And all that time, here's what you don't have time to ask. What am I really here for? What am I really accomplishing in life? You see, making money seems so important until you, you know, you've heard, us, we talk about this a lot. <clears throat> Nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Nobody. Especially since you know whatever amount of money you've, you've made is of no use for you now. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. See, the fact of the matter is that we just get distracted from actually saying, oh, wait, what is really important? I'll tell you what's important. Character, love, relationships, all those things that you were too busy to cultivate. But it goes a little further. It says money is worthless in the day of wrath. What does that mean? Well, it might mean judgment day. I mean, it, or at least have a view to judgment day. But I think it's talking about something more than that. The troubles that are going to happen to you, that's the day of wrath. See, the, one of the terrible things about money is it gives you the deep delusion that if you have it, you're safe. You get this strong sense, if I've got it, finally I'm safe. You rest in that. You relax. How dare you? Bereavement. Relational betrayal. People stabbing you in the back. Grief when people die. Dire illness. Uh, uh, financial disasters and, and, and all. No amount of money can stop those things happening to you. And they will happen to you. And because you think money has made you safe, when those things happen to you, you'll be incredibly vulnerable. Because you won't have the things. You won't have the character. You won't have the faith. You won't have the things that you really need on that day. Money can't stop death. It can't stop tragedy. It can't stop heartbreak. And it won't. And you won't be ready. Because money, first of all, has the power to distort your understanding of life and what life is about. Secondly, the book of Proverbs says, and this is even worse, money has the ability to distort your understanding of yourself, your self-appreciation, your self-regard, your self-image. So, for example, in uh, Proverbs 13, uh, pardon me, Proverbs 30, it says, give me neither, this is verse 9, give me neither riches, but give me only my daily bread, lest I have too much and disown you saying, who is the Lord? Now, this is really, listen carefully. I'm going to say this very carefully. Bernard of Clairvaux was reputed to have said, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. And this is where the power of money really shows itself. If you are a world's expert in physics, you're unlikely to think that you're smart about everything. 
if you're a world expert in philosophy, you know, if you're a great philosopher and you teach at Columbia University in philosophy, I doubt it that you necessarily think you're smart about everything. But if you make a lot of money, if you get smart and you make a killing and you make some money, you will start to think that you're smart about everything. There's something about wealth that makes you feel like, oh, I understand everything. It, it, to, over, to overtrust in your t- intuitions, to overtrust in your wisdom, and you start to feel like I'm an expert about everything. I can do everything. I know what, what's going on here. It brings pride. It p- puts you to the place where you say, who is the Lord? Why do I need him? This is dangerous at several levels. Let me explain. There's a bunch of them. One of them is it can distort your view of yourself so that you choose a career badly. See, money can blind you, so you say, well, I'd really like to do that, but that wouldn't make me any money. So I've got to do this, and I'm going to do that, and that will give me money and status. That will work for five to ten years. Because at first there's the adrenaline, and it actually lasts a long time, the adrenaline. I got into the school I won. I got into the, the graduate school I wanted. I got the first job. I started to make the money. I bought the thing. But at a certain point, it'll wear off and you'll be empty because it's really not what you're built for. And then you'll feel empty and you'll wonder why. It's because money, the over-desire for money and material things, distorted your ability to understand who you really were. And you got into a career that didn't work. Let me give you another example. In general, what happens is if you make a fair amount of money and you start to feel pretty good about yourself, you over-trust your intuitions. It means, first of all, sometimes you can make terrible business choices. You've seen it happen a lot. Somebody makes a fair amount of money over here, and he's basically lucky, but he doesn't see it or she doesn't see it that way. They think, oh, I really know what I'm doing. So off you go into a new venture, and it goes down the twos. Why? Because you really didn't take a lot of advice. Why? Because you knew, but you didn't know, but you thought you knew. Why? Because money made you think you did. And it can actually make you really foolish about thinking, well, I can your intuition about people, you say, oh, I got that. I know that person. No good. Yes. No. Yes. Make terrible decisions about who to marry, terrible decisions about friendships. But here's the worst thing. There is no more important skill in life than repentance. There's nothing more important to long-term good relationships than the ability to say, I was wrong, I blew it, no excuses, I was wrong. There's nothing more important for love relationships than than humility. And there's nothing more vital for a relationship with God than humility. And money takes that away and destroys the ability to do that. It doesn't have to. See, obviously, it's not impossible to be saved. To, well, that's what that's the whole sermon is about, how to escape the power of money. But you have to see that that's the tendency. There's the danger of money. And worst of all, in the end, money always blinds you to how important it is to you. You'll never admit to yourself how important it is because that's, that's the nature of addiction. Now... Why? Why is it that money has this incredible power? How, why would it have that kind of power? Let's go to the next part. The next point is, let's take a look at what the reasons are for this danger. And we get that by looking at how uh, Jesus actually deals with this rich young ruler. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus said, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, what's going on here? First of all, we're shocked when a man comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, see the Ten Commandments, obey the Ten Commandments. 
The implication is that's how you find eternal life. Now, it's shocking. If you're not shocked, it's partly because we've just lifted this passage right out and we're talking about it. But if you just read all of Luke 18, if you're just reading along, you'll know because we looked at it four or five weeks ago that just a little earlier, almost immediately before this, almost immediately before this, Jesus tells a story. And the story is of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee is proud that he obeys the commandments. And he says, he, he looks up to God and he says, I thank thee, O Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector. I obey the commandments. I obey the commandments. In other words, he was sure that he could inherit eternal life through obeying the commandments. And the other person in the story is a tax collector. And all he does is he beats his chest and he doesn't even look to heaven. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector who simply asked for forgiveness and grace and mercy, who went home saved. And it was the Pharisee who thought he could obey the Ten Commandments and get eternal life that way, who went home not saved. In other words, Jesus has said over and over and over and over again, you cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't get a relationship with God through your good works. Nobody can do that. It's impossible. So that when he says this, you go, what's going on? What is going on? Because you say, here's what he should have said if he fits in with everything else he said elsewhere and with everything else in the New Testament. Why didn't Jesus say, oh, you want eternal life? I have come to die for your sins. I have come to go to the cross, pay a ransom, uh, to take the penalty you deserve, and if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Why didn't he say that? And the answer is, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He, I, I, it just astonishes me how he does not work off. When he deals with people, he never works off a set of talking points that somebody gave him or he created himself. He doesn't work off a template. He's amazing. Every person he deals with, he deals with uniquely because his insight is such that he knows the uniqueness of each person. So he never treats anybody quite the same. It's always, as we're going to see, it's always the same gospel, but he never approaches it the same way. Why doesn't he say, I've come to die for your sins. I'm your savior. Just believe in me. Why doesn't he say that? Because it would have been incomprehensible to this young man. Why? Because he's, he's like most everybody else in New York City. He doesn't think he's got a problem. If he said, I come to die for your sins to rescue you, he, he would have said, well, look what he says. Verse 21, all these I have kept. I don't need a rescue. I'm a good person. Uh, Polly Toynbee. So, uh, Polly Toynbee is a, you, most of you wouldn't have heard of her. She's a British journalist, been around a long time, writes for The Guardian, um, and she does not like Christianity, and uh, every so often she uh, spouts off about it. But one of my favorite places is where she wrote this. And this, this is very typical of what I think most New Yorkers would say, too. Now, listen. She says, of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion that Christ, who took, took our sins upon himself, sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? You see her point. She says, I'm offended when you tell me, I'm your savior. I've come to die for you. I didn't ask for that. I don't need that. What do you, I don't need to be rescued. I'm fine. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not so bad that I need to be rescued. And that's exactly what this young man would have said. See why Jesus is a better counselor than you and me? He's not just bludgeoning him over the head. So what does he do? But why does he actually come toward? I want you to see that Jesus probably 
deals with him like this because he perceives that the young man is not completely secure. In spite of this external confidence, this superficial confidence, he says, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. So on the outside, he looks very confident. But why is he even there? Hmm? The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was not in any way a burning question at that place and time. In Judea, everybody knew the answer, they thought. Everybody's, everybody's rabbi would have given the same answer. And the answer is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Obey the statutes of God and avoid all sin. Obey the statutes of God and avoid sin. Anybody would have known that. Everybody would have known that. Anybody could have answered that. So the only reason that this rich young ruler would have gone to Jesus and asked that question is if he knew deep down inside, underneath all of his superficial confidence, there was something not right, something wrong, something missing. Maybe I'm not doing it. I'm not sure I am doing it right. Now, Jesus immediately jumps on that, actually, because as soon as he sees him asking the question, he perceives this about the young man, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you've got to be careful. At first, you might say, is Jesus saying, I'm not good? He's not, actually. There's plenty of places where he claims to be God, son of God, right? But what he means is, why are you walking up to apparently a human being, just a rabbi, and calling him good? Where's your understanding of what the Bible teaches? I mean, it's, this is not just a New Testament doctrine. Psalm 130. O oh Lord, if you mark sins, who would stand? There is no one righteous before you. So what he's actually saying is, your first problem is this. You are not good. There is no human being that's good. Only God is good. You should know that from the Bible. And one of the reasons why you're uneasy is because you've forgotten that. See, this is a very important first step. Jesus is actually teaching theology. He's teaching theology in an incredibly uh, pastoral way. But the reason why there are Pharisees, self-righteous people who are sure that they're right with God, and people who are really upset, unhappy, down on themselves, insecure, is because if you believe that you can get right with God by living a good life, and that's how most people feel, always have. If you believe you can get right with God by living a good life, Deep down inside, you're going to be insecure. You will always be insecure because you will always feel like, have I really done it well enough? And everybody's going to know. You know, on the outside, you can see other people who look like their whole lives are together. On the inside, they know. They know better. And on the inside, you know better. You know things about your heart. You know things about your life. You know things that you've done that you don't want anybody else to know. And don't you see, if you... If you start to give in to this idea that, hey, I can get right with God by living a good life, it's going to create radical insecurity in you. Some of you will deal with it by becoming Pharisees, being self-righteous, you know, constantly talking about how good you are, looking down on others or being a bigot. That's one way to deal with the insecurity. The other way to deal with the insecurity is to kind of be down on yourself and to feel guilty and to feel maybe a kind of low self-esteem. Or maybe you come to Jesus because on the outside, you look like you're all pulled together, but on the inside, you know there's something that's not right. And Jesus says, it's, your problem starts with bad theology. Your problem starts when you think that people can be good. Nobody can be good. Nobody is good. But then he launches in. He says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. All of these I've kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay, you lack one more thing. Now, here it comes. 
sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have eternal life, treasure in heaven. And then follow me. You want eternal life? Sell everything, give to the poor, and then be one of my disciples and travel with me. Then you'll have eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Again, we're shocked because, A, he's never said this to anybody else. When he's dealt with Nicodemus, when he's dealt with a woman at the well, when he deals, I mean, when he deals with Mary, Martha, whoever, there's no other place where he says to people, if you want to be saved, give away all your money to the poor. Nowhere else. And we're going to see in two weeks, I guess it's two weeks or so, um, when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, converts, he says, Lord, I'm going to start giving away 50% of all my income to the poor. 50%, not all, 50. And what does Jesus say? Great. So why is he sticking into this young man? He doesn't do that with anybody else. He never makes anything like this demand. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because it's a brilliant strategy personally and theologically. Personally and theologically. First, the personal. Here's why he's bringing this up. Do you remember, or if you don't, I'll tell you about it. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman in Samaria at the well. And he talks to her about eternal life. He calls it living water. And he says, uh, I have a living water. I have a water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And she says, sir, I would like to have that water. Give it to me. He says, okay, you want my water, my living water? Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband, she says. Right, he says. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Notice, no talk about money. Why is he pushing her on this? I'll tell you why he's pushing her on this. He's pushing her on this because this is her living water. This is the thing that she's been looking to for hope, for meaning, for love, for security. It's men. And he's saying, you can't look to men to give me what only I can give you. Now, at least half of you know that anyway, right? Uh, You know which half knows that. But you know what? He doesn't bring up money to her because that wasn't her issue. And he doesn't bring up women or sex or romance or anything like that to this man because that wasn't his issue. What's he doing? He's bringing up money because this is his living water. This is the thing that he's looking for, to give what only God can give. For him, money is not just money. It's not just an instrument. It's not just a tool. It's an identity scorecard. It's a thing that, it's, 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 it's his security. It's a sense of this is why I'm an important person. <clears throat> and he's going after it because it is the thing that's squeezing out God in his life. And that's the personal strategy. But that linked to it, very linked to it, is a theological strategy. Here's what he's actually saying. He says, obey the commandments. You want to have eternal life? Fine, obey the commandments. And then you go to heaven. And the young man says, well, I've obeyed all the commandments. He says, oh, really? Okay, let's just go down. Let's start at the top. First commandment, have no other gods before me. All right, let's do a thought experiment. If God's more important to you than anything else, then I, I, I said, could you even conceive of giving all your money away to the poor, which would be a wonderful thing for the poor, and then you come and live with me, follow me. In other words, if you follow me, you'll be living with me. You'll be supported by me. In a sense, he's saying, are you willing to give it all up for me? Are you willing to give it all up for God? And of course, the young man couldn't. Why couldn't he? 
because money was more important to him than God. It was his God. That's why it says, when he heard this, verse 23, it says he became very sad, but it's a strong word that means deeply grieved, deeply distressed, disoriented. He's staggering. Why is he staggering? Because money is not just money to him. It's what men were to that woman at the well. It's what money is to a lot of us. It's really more important. In the end, I want God in my life as long as it doesn't get in the way of this. Because this is what really matters to me. But you see what Jesus is doing? He's making a theological point. He's saying nobody obeys the Ten Commandments. Look at the first one. You can't even get past the first one. Have no other gods before me. God has created you. God sustains you every second. You should live for him. You should give him everything. But there's all kinds of things that are more important to you than God. Do you love God more than money? Do you love God more than your family? Do you love God more than your success or your career? Do you love God more than anything else in the world? Of course you don't. You can't even get past the first commandments. You cannot possibly inherit eternal life through obeying the Ten Commandments. You need a savior. You need a rescue. So you see why money has a spiritual power, because it can become that to us. It can become a kind of pseudo-salvation. It can be a false savior. It can become a, a kind of righteousness. And that's the reason why it can have this terrible, terrible uh, uh, Im- uh, impact on us. But the other thing we're learning here is that no one is righteous. No, not one. Everyone falls short. The commandments are not the way to eternal life. You're going to have to find it through free grace and through what Jesus has done. Now, how do you escape? We get to the end. How can you escape the power of money? How can you make sure that the power of money is not distorting your life? I'm going to give you three steps, and here's what they are. Assume you're in denial. Look to the rich young ruler and have a plan. All right, let's go through them. I'm going to be very practical here. A, assume you're in denial. Notice in verse 24, it says, Jesus looked at him and said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is Jesus being so blunt? Why is he being so abrupt? It's like smelling salts. It's like a punch in the mouth. It's like a smack on the face. Why is he being so strong? He's not always that strong with people. He was very gentle, frankly, with the woman at the well and other people. Why is he being so strong? He's treating this It's like smelling salts. He's treating this man as if he's under the influence. This is what you do with a drunk person, you know, who's driving. You grab him. You take the wheel. You smack him. You said, get in the passenger seat. I'm not going to let you do it, okay? He's acting as if he's under the influence. And I would like you all, I think we should all realize that because we live in New York City, we're all somewhat under the influence. Assume you're in denial about this. Assume you're somewhat under the influence. Assume that the amount of money you think you need is more than you really need, and assume the amount of money you think you can give away is less than what you really can give away. Assume it. Would you please? Would you take me seriously on that? Do you realize how many places the Bible talks about the fact that that money makes you blind? If your eye, that money money, gives you a dark eye, that's another passage. So that's that's the first step. The second step is look to the rich young ruler, and you say, Why? The rich young ruler doesn't get converted here. As far as we know, he doesn't get converted. So how can we look to the rich young ruler? The the rich young ruler did not do the right thing. So he's not a good example for us. But if you look more carefully, there is a rich young ruler in this passage who did do the right thing. 
there's a rich young ruler who did do the right thing. Don't you see him? Jesus is only 31 or 32 years old here. And do you know where he came from? He came from heaven. Maybe Jesus is looking at this young man. And by the way, Matthew and Mark tell us that when he told him these things, he loved him. He loved him. Matthew and Mark tell us he looked at him and he loved him. Now, here's maybe what he's thinking. He may be thinking something like this. He may be looking at him and saying, I'm a rich young ruler too, far richer than you ever could imagine. I had all the incomparable glory of heaven and of the universe. But now I am going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever gone, into a poverty you cannot now imagine. I've already been stripped of my glory, but soon I'm going to be stripped of my friends. I'm going to be stripped of my relationship with my father. I'm going to be stripped of my clothes. I'm going to be stripped of my life. I'm going to be crying out on the cross. I'm going to lose everything. I was a rich young ruler, and I'm giving away everything. Why? Who is he giving his money away to? The poor. Jesus is the rich young ruler giving away all of his money to the poor. He didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. What? Who? who? Us. Us. 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. We're spiritually poor. We're spiritually bankrupt. We, we have to beat on our breasts like the tax collector and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the reason he can be merciful is because Jesus Christ took the punishment we deserve. He was drained of all riches so that we could have his riches, so we could have forgiveness, we could have pardon, we could have adoption into the family of God, we could have everything that really matters, every kind of wealth, the wealth that really lasts, the wealth that really makes you secure. Now look at that. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, I ask you to believe it. If you can't believe it, go to the credibility of Christianity class that Jeff's going to be doing for the next few weeks. If, on the other hand, you do believe it, I want you to look at it and rejoice in it until you become so happy and so weepingly exciting, excited. You know, with tears in your eyes, you ought to be saying, look, I've got the only wealth that really matters. Look at what the real rich young ruler did for you until it makes you happy enough that it drains all power out of money and money just becomes money. It's no longer your self-esteem. It's no longer your security. It's just money. And then you'll be able to give it away. And lastly, here's the plan. You want a plan? A, assume you're in denial. B, look to their true rich young ruler and C, have a plan. Here's a plan. Do you, have the, do you have the courage to do this plan? Sit down and ask yourself, what percentage of my income am I giving away? How much am I giving to Christian ministry? How much am I giving to, to charity, to the poor, to people with needs outside of my family? What percentage? That's step A. Step B, if it's not 10%, and in the Old Testament, 10% was the standard for Old Testament believers, in the New Testament, it would have to be the floor. It would have to be the least that you give away. If it's not 10%, so you look at yourself, if it's not 10%, ask yourself, how can I really aggressively move toward 10% this year? At least a couple of points toward it. As much as you possibly can, push toward it. Okay? A, figure out what your percentage is. B, determine that you're going to try to move toward 10%. And if you got to 10%, see whether you can go beyond that. C, 
Figure out what sacrifices you're going to make in order to get there. Be honest with yourself. And if you say, well, I'm not going to make any sacrifice. I'm just going to give more. Well, you're not giving enough then. You're not giving sacrificially yet if it doesn't change how you live. And D, decide where it's going to go and hold yourself accountable. Have a way to make sure that you follow through. Do you have the courage to do that? No, it's not what you need. You don't need courage. You need joy. You need to be happy enough to do that. You need to be relaxed enough to do that. You need to be at peace enough to do that. And that will only come by looking at the true rich young ruler who lost everything so that we could gain everything. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us a, uh, a perfect picture of what your son did for us so that we then can turn and in turn uh, begin to live according to his pattern. He came not to serve but to be served. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. He came not to take, but to give and to give himself. And we pray that you would help us to live according to that pattern too and to know the joy and the freedom that comes when we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.